the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we look at Donald Trump's much anticipated speech to Congress and his plans to reform corporate taxation. Long on rhetoric and short on detail is how many commentators characterize it. Caroline Freund, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and formerly of the World Bank, explains why America's headline corporate taxation rate needs to be brought down and why this could be bad news for Ireland. Economist and Irish Times columnist Chris Johns reckons that Trump doesn't understand how VAT works on international trade. And in the second half of the show, we'll consider the future of the Irish Examiner newspaper in Cork amid reports that its owner has held exploratory talks with rival publisher INM on a possible link-up. I'll be joined in studio by Irish Times colleagues Laura Slattery and Mark Paul. First to Donald Trump and a speech to Congress on Tuesday. We'll begin with a clip where he outlines his plans for tax reform and his plans to bring jobs back home to the United States. But to accomplish our goals at home and abroad, we must restart the engine of the American economy, making it easier for companies to do business in the United States and much, much harder for companies to leave our country. Right now, American companies are taxed at one of the highest rates anywhere in the world. My economic team is developing historic tax reform that will reduce the tax rate on our companies so they can compete and thrive anywhere and with anyone. It will be a big, big cut. Currently, when we ship products out of America, many other countries make us pay very high tariffs and taxes. But when foreign companies ship their products into America, we charge them nothing or almost nothing. I believe strongly in free trade, but it also has to be fair trade. It's been a long time since we had fair trade. The first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, warned that the abandonment of the protective policy by the American government will produce want and ruin among our people. Lincoln was right, and it's time we heeded his advice and his words. Caroline Freund, um, long on rhetoric, short on detail is what a lot of commentators and analysts have been saying following that speech. And I suppose that's probably fair. To, we were expecting some detail perhaps on these uh, uh, taxes, but he hasn't actually given us any. Yeah, that's, yes, that's exactly right. Um, so I think people were happy about the tone of his speech, which was more presidential than uh, previous remarks. But at the same time, there wasn't the kind of detail on tax reform, on Obamacare, on the infrastructure program, on any of these uh ideas that he has that markets were really looking for. So you can see that the market didn't move on his speech. Yeah, Chris Johns, he did say that when American uh, companies ship the products out of uh, the US, uh, many other countries make them pay very high tariffs and taxes. But when the reverse happens, they pay, those foreign companies pay almost nothing. And um, what's, what's your view of that? Um, we're not entirely sure what he's getting at there. I think that he's making a reference in part at least to VAT, value-added tax, which, of course, we know very mm. well here in Europe. And if that's what he's referring to, he's getting it completely and utterly wrong. Um, it's, it's a very level playing field. We don't um, put VAT on exports. That's true when we, put, uh, when we send anything to the United States services or goods that are vatable here 
we don't levy VAT. That's why we have lineups at the airport with tourists claiming their VAT back when they're taking goods out of the country. We don't put VAT on exports. But that's not the same thing as saying that we have an unfair or, or, or unlevel playing field because um, when, we, when, when somebody sells goods and services here in Ireland, we charge VAT. It doesn't matter whether they're produced here or whether they're produced somewhere else. Similarly, when we send goods overseas, it's a level playing field. The, the Americans don't level VAT on goods that we send to them. So I think that he's getting that aspect of uh, taxation of exports completely wrong. Caroline, is that your assessment as well? Yes, uh, completely. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, but it's been a constant refrain from many people in this administration that the VAT is a tax that U.S. exporters pay and uh, imports don't pay when they come to us. That part is true. The difference is that it's non-discriminatory. So exactly as was just said, the tax that is charged on American products is the exact same tax that's charged on domestically produced goods. In the tax plan that's proposed by House Republicans, uh, Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady, they have what they claim is a, um, a way to counter this supposed uh, VAT tax that U.S. exporters face, which is to put a border adjustment on a cash flow tax. Um, so it sounds in the speech like he's referring to that, that we're going to start taxing imports at 20%, which is the rate proposed by them. It could be different in any final legislation. But, and that tax wouldn't apply to U.S. exports. Very different from a VAT because the tax U.S. firms face would be at a different rate. And Caroline, why is it, do you think, that he didn't put some specifics around his tax policy in his speech? I don't think he settled on it. So this tax plan proposed by the House is highly controversial. We have lots of lobbies uh, lining up against it, especially this border adjustment aspect. And I think he hasn't decided where he stands on that. He clearly wants to do something that he can call a border tax. He said over and over again that uh, he thinks it's very important that the U.S. has a tax at the border. So that's clearly the direction he's going in. But I don't think he's fallen in love with the House proposal just yet. Chris Johns, he used some very curious uh, language, I thought, in his speech. He said, I'm not going to let America and its great companies and workers be taken advantage of anymore. And in fact, if you come to Europe, uh, there's a perception that a lot of American companies are taking advantage of Europe uh, by paying, you know, little or no tax here, of, by taking advantage of various tax structures um, that are offered here. And he, I mean, Trump is almost suggesting as, as if these companies are being forced overseas, uh, kicking and screaming. They're being forced out of America because of policies that have been pursued by previous administrations, when in fact the opposite is really true, isn't it? Well, yeah. Um, all great lies come wrapped around a small kernel of truth. Um, the tax regime in the United States, the corporation tax regime in the United States is dreadful. Um, and it does place U.S. corporations at a disadvantage relative to other competitors. But as you have just said, and as we know all too well here in Ireland, there are lots of ways that they have found mm. around this. And Europe has started to fight back. The Apple case is the most extreme example of that, but there are plenty of others. The OECD has its BEPS project, which is trying to 
um, coordinate the tax base and harmonize corporate taxation globally. It's, 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 you know, it's a valiant effort. It hasn't gotten very far so far. Um, but he's right that the U.S. corporation tax regime needs reform. I mean, that, that, that's absolutely right. And that they, they need to be placed on a level playing field in order that these things that Apple are doing and others, um, they don't have to do that. I mean, that has serious implications for us, of course, and we've, we've talked about those in, in a different context, and we'll talk about it again. But the other aspect that I think that Europe feels that uh, um, we're at a disadvantage compared to um, American corporations is the fact that an, an awful lot of these, these companies that we talk about are either um, monopolies or quasi-monopolies. And the, the, these giant corporations like Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, they're dominating everything now. And I think that from a competition perspective, the European Commission has been having a go at these companies for a number of years now. There's been several cases, including Microsoft, including Google. Um, and I think we're going to be coming back to this topic again, that the, you know, the, the profits that these companies are earning are certainly consistent with the idea that uh, competition ain't what it should be. Um, and, and these are American corporations dominating us rather than the other way around. Caroline, what's the view of corporate America towards Trump's tax plans? Well, everybody agrees that the current corporate tax system is bad. So the U.S. statutory tax rate, what's actually on the books for corporations, is 39% on average, which includes state and local taxes. The federal is 35%, which puts us as the fourth highest tax rate in the world. And we're between countries like Chad and the Democratic Republic of Congo on tax uh, rates. So it's a list we don't really want to be on, um, and it's not working. As was said, the effective tax rate is much lower because there's so many loopholes and things like corporate inversions. And that's actually in part what this border adjustment or exactly what this border adjustment is designed to, to reduce. Um, so we all agree that, that we need tax reform. I think one issue, and especially relevant for Ireland with the tax proposal, is that it turns U.S. into the new Ireland in the sense that uh, countries would want to book their profits in the U.S. Uh, because taxes will be so low. Chris, what will this mean for Ireland and the foreign direct investments that we have from American companies, so many American companies? Yeah, well, potentially it's very serious. Um, we've said for years that these companies come here for all sorts of reasons. Initially, they come for tax, but they stay for other reasons as well. I think we're going to test those theories to destruction now in the years ahead. It's not going to happen overnight. We know that there's going to be a huge bun fight in the US between um, Trump and the Republicans over just what all of this is actually turns into in terms of detail. But we know it's coming. Some, some kind of corporation tax reform in the United States is coming, and it's going to tilt the playing field away from us. The extent of it remains to be seen, but we're certainly um, heading, we're certainly going to have a lot of headwinds um, in the future compared to the past. Now, having said that, a lot of companies are using Ireland as a base into Europe and the Middle East, aren't they, and Africa mm. as well. That's not necessarily going to change. That's right. And that's the point I'm making, that they come here for tax and they stay for other reasons. You know, the, the access to the European Union, access to the Middle East, um, our young, well-educated workforce is something that the IDA goes on, on quite rightly goes on about. Um, and those advantages will still exist. But the extent to which anybody comes here for tax and tax alone, that clearly is going to be significantly reduced. Caroline, uh, in his speech, Donald Trump said that he believes strongly in free trade, uh, but also in uh, fair trade. It's a curious statement because he's uh, he, he's 
he's t- he's talked very disparagingly about uh, NAFTA, the North American uh, Free Trade Agreement, and he's taken them out of the, he's already killed the Trans-Pacific uh, Agreement, hasn't he? Yes, that's right. So we do expect to see movement on trade. Uh, I think a lot of it will take the form of enforcement, so more anti-dumping duties, uh, countervailing duties, uh, especially on China, uh, so that he can talk about, you know, tariffs put on China. And then this kind of talk he's done where uh, he encourages companies to bring jobs and here uh, in favor of other locations, and he does this through kind of a name-and-shame policy, which is clearly working at the micro level, whether it has macro effects remains to be seen. Chris, maybe you could explain to us just uh, how the trade relationship between the United States and the European Union works. Um, it's, it's essentially one way to think about it for manufactured goods is in terms of the World Trade Organization rules. And then there are other um, arrangements, uh, depending on which bits of the economy that you're looking at. Um, the, for manufacturers, it isn't, it isn't a big deal. For services, it's more complicated. So as I say, it, 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 it does vary. So, and we've heard in, in relation to Brexit, you know, we've heard um, some um, senior people on the Brexit side in Britain talking about, well, look, if we can't cut a deal with uh, the European Union that's favourable to Britain, we'll just go to WTO tariffs and that'll be a better deal than, uh, you know, what we have at the minute. Now, the concerns, a lot of concerns in Ireland about um, that scenario but if we already have WTO tariffs effectively with the United States and it works very well, just explain to us why uh, a WTO-driven deal with Britain would be bad for us. Well, for manufacturers, it wouldn't be such a big deal. Um, it is a big deal for a country like the UK, depending you know, on whether it's autos, um, whether there are sector-specific tariffs associated with that. that. They could be as high as 10%. You might not think that 10% um, is a particularly high number. For others, it, it might be as low as 3% in, in terms of the way the, the, these rate structures work. The problem for Ireland would be for agricultural goods. We, we, to all intents and purposes, we can actually thank our lucky stars in this world that we're living in. That We don't have a huge manufacturing sector. We don't have all of these steel, coal, metal bashing jobs that have disappeared to the Far East. We didn't have the industrial age, really, in Ireland, did we? The industrial revolution passed us by. Um, But what we still have is a significant agricultural sector that benefits. You know, we send an awful lot of agri-products to the United Kingdom um, and, and to Europe, of course. But it's that UK market. When the UK joined the European Union in the first place back in the early 1970s, um, it's Commonwealth countries like New Zealand and Australia. Their agricultural goods were, were, were shut out behind this very high tariff wall that the European Union has for agricultural goods. Um, and, and that's essentially to protect French, southern French farmers and, and, and other more inefficient um, agricultural producers. And we've benefited from that in that we don't have this competition. But there are plenty of countries now queuing up. For example, the old British Commonwealth is still there thinking we're going to be able to sell meat, dairy back into the UK in the way that we haven't been able to for a long time. And that's direct competition for still a very significant part, you know, much smaller than it used to be, mm. but a still very important employer um, and and uh, contributor to the Irish economy. Caroline, I'm not sure how closely you fro- followed the Brexit debate. A lot of concerns in Ireland, obviously, about what it will mean, given that so much of our trade goes to the UK, but also concerns in relation to the border between North and South. We're hoping a hard border won't be introduced. Also concerns that maybe tariffs might be applied to goods going uh, North and South. Doesn't sound very practical, really. I'm just wondering, in your experience, if there are any precedents uh, elsewhere from around the world 
you know, in maybe the past 20, 30 years, which might give us a guide as to how this might work without any hard border or tariffs uh, necessarily between the two uh, jurisdictions? Well, it really depends actually on that issue of whether there are tariffs. So we have seen breakups uh, before. So the Soviet Union is an obvious example. And I did a study where I looked at how trade changed uh, following the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And what you find is that trade patterns changed enormously. Now, obviously, a lot of other things were going on because though many of the new countries were uh, reorienting towards the West or the um, sort of uh, CIS countries. Um, but but in this case, what I would expect is not very much if there are no tariffs, if if there's uh, WTO tariffs come into play, then I would expect trade to fall. When we look at studies of the European Union, what it suggests is that it increases trade between members uh, on the order of 50% or so. And some of that is going to disappear. Right. Okay. Chris, how are you reading the tea leaves on the Brexit issue at the minute on the Brexit debate in Britain? Well, it's about to get real. Um, it's March the 1st today, Happy St. David's Day. Um, and sometime this month, the Article 50 letter, email, whatever it is, is going to be sent from Theresa May to, to, to Brussels. So then, you know, the phony war ends and the, and, and the shooting starts. Um, and I think it gets very serious very quickly because I think that there are so many different ways in which the uh, wheels could come off the Brexit bus. Um, the, the initial one is going to be the bill, the €60 billion Euros that, that Brussels wants from Britain um, to cover the liabilities that they're going to be leaving behind, things like pension payments and other commitments that the British have made. Um, and that's just the first step. Um, there are so many different ways in which this, this is going to be very complicated. Um, we've talked about tariffs. That obviously is, is, is a massive area that involves a huge amount of detail. And nobody in the UK has any experience of this. No, there are no trade negotiators left in the UK, for example. Nobody in the UK understands world WTO rules, for example. They haven't had to understand them for decades. So it's, I think it's going to get very messy very quickly. All right, that's a pretty gloomy note. Um, Caroline, just coming back to you and Donald Trump. Um, there will be midterm elections. The Republicans have the White House and they have uh, control of Congress at the minute. But midterm elections... Uh, have done in the past. They've shifted the balance of power uh, oftentimes away from the party controlling the White House. Do you think that might happen this time? And do you think that could alter Donald Trump's you know, plans around taxation and so forth? Yes, I think it could. I think it will really depend on what they're able to do. And I think they've made it extremely difficult for themselves with saying that uh, the repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act uh, has to come first, because that's going to take a long time in its own right. It's going to uh, disrupt Congress, etc., and they could be going for something like tax reform first, which I think would have a, a much stronger positive appeal, uh, help to generate growth, keep uh, the stock market ticking up, and go into the midterms in a really strong position. But by, attack, by tackling the Affordable Care Act, which I just see as a no-win for them, people aren't going to be happy when they lose their health care coverage. By, by tackling that first, I think they do stand to lose very sharply in the midterm elections. 
Chris Johns. Yeah, I think the, you raised the point there about the stock market and growth and all of these other things. Well, he mentioned it in the speech how it's at a record high, an extra $3 trillion or something that's been generated. Both Theresa May and Donald Trump may be getting lucky. Um, one of the things that happened at the time Trump was elected that the stock market took off and people correlated the two and said one caused the other, that it's the Trump reflation trade. Um, all of this promised spending, tax cuts, w w was leading to a, the stock market going through the roof. Um, it certainly happened at the same time, but I think there's an equally plausible, if not more plausible, explanation as to why the stock market started to motor last autumn. And that's because the world economy suddenly started to take off. Um, we had our eye off the ball because we were so focused on Brexit. We were so focused on the US presidential election. The old fashioned stuff of looking at the economic data coming out of Asia, coming out of Europe, coming out of the United States, all of a sudden took a turn for the better. That would have generated a lot of headlines back in the autumn, but it didn't because we were looking elsewhere. And those numbers have continued to get better every month from everywhere. Uh, every day, something is surprising on the upside with respect to the economy. Not it's not dominating the headlines because of this stuff is dominating the headlines. And I think that's why, much more than Trump, is why the stock market is going up all the time, because things are actually all of a sudden, when people least expected it, all the talk last year was a secular stagnation, the world economy was trapped in low growth forever. All of a sudden, we're growing again. And inflation is showing signs of coming back. It's all very early days. But if this is if this is actually happening, and, and often it is the case that politicians have absolutely nothing to do with the business cycle, mm. the business cycle is what it is. They're going to take the credit, and this is you know depending on your perspective, this is either a great thing or a very sinister thing. But they could be about to get lucky. Well, let's just talk about Brexit for a minute, Chris, because obviously you've been very negative on Britain's decision mm. to leave the European Union. But actually, the British economy has been going along very nicely, thank you. And they've had a, a number of announcements from corporations, Facebook and Nissan and so on, saying that they're going to invest uh, substantial sums of money in Britain in their operations. Yep. Um, I certainly got the immediate aftermath of Brexit wrong. And the bit that I got wrong, like everybody else, was that I forgot that if, if the majority of people were going to vote for something and they got what they wanted, they were going to be quite happy about it and that the majority of people in the UK have continued to spend. And um, the consumer has been responsible for the behaviour of the UK economy since then, and the consumer has just, just been spending like crazy. Um, and the way in which that's happened is that they've been running down their savings. So I would argue that's not sustainable, and I think that the UK economy is, 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 going to, is still going to run into difficulties, but hands up, did, did get that wrong. But the UK economy is an exporting economy, and if the world economy is doing well, the UK economy is going to benefit from that. And that's got nothing to do with, 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 with all of these po political dynamics. It's to do with the fact that, you know, eight, nine years after the financial crisis, all of this stimulus that was pumped in by central banks into the world economy, just when you least expected it, seems to be having an effect. And Caroline, to close, uh, Donald Trump said very early in his speech that a new chapter of American greatness was now beginning. Do you concur? No, I don't think so. I'm very concerned about the reforms he's planning. I think it's going to look a lot like the Reagan years, where tax cuts, if they happen, could stimulate growth, along with obviously the changes in the world economy that were just mentioned, so that we have a short boom that's followed by a crash when we pay in uh, inequality and fiscal deficits for those changes. Uh, I would like to say one thing about the market. I think it's true that part of it is a response to the world market. I think in the U.S., 
there is a response to Trump in that if corporations believe regu- regulations are going to be removed and they believe even if some of those re- regulations are there for a reason, they still restrict uh, uh, corporate ability to uh, move. Um, and in addition, if they believe they're going to be big tax cuts, they do think their profits are going up. So it's not necessarily a sign of growth. It's a sign of improved profitability. And that's feeding very much into the market and into kind of the attitude right now around Trump. But that would have to be realized, that part of it, for the U.S. rally to be maintained. Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Chris Johns and Caroline Freund. We'll take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Irish Times journalists Laura Slattery and Mark Paul about the future of the Irish Examiner newspaper in Cork. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back to the show. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Uh, to support this podcast, you might like to remind your colleagues and friends that Inside Business is available to download for free from iTunes. And it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. I'm joined now in studio by Irish Times journalist Laura Slattery and Mark Paul to consider the future of the Irish Examiner newspaper in Cork. Uh, this follows a report in the Sunday Times last weekend, which suggested that the owners of the Irish Examiner are in exploratory talks with INM, a rival publisher, which, of course, uh, produces the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent, Sunday World and various other newspapers. And Laura Slattery, I'm going to let you take it away. Uh, wh- what's behind this deal? Potential well, deal. Potential deal, exactly. And it's at a very early stage, I suppose, tentative stage, uh, described as exploratory talks. Yes, that could mean a multitude now, couldn't it? I mean, that could mean a, a printing contract as much as a, a takeover. Yeah, I mean... You know, takeover is is sort of the 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 most you know strong result we could get as a result of this, and I have to say, although the you know there wasn't uh, you know the the story lacked uh, any kind of uh, confirmation or indeed comment from either side, either I and M, which declined to comment, and or Landmark, which sort of refused to respond to the journalists from the Sunday Times, um, there is something about it that has the ring of truth, I'm afraid, and that's just because. Uh, the uh, landmark, which of course is, is publisher publisher of the Irish Examiner, and a number of other regional papers that are not thought to be of interest to INM, um, is in is in financial difficulty. Uh, you know, has been for a, some time. It carried over a lot of debt from twenty one million euro. Yeah, I mean, it carried over about nineteen and a half million de- in debt from the TCH, the Thomas Crosby Holdings receivership in t- in two thousand thirteen. So it's 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 effectively being kept alive by its lenders. Uh, the main which, one of which is is AIB. Uh, well, meanwhile, uh, the is there the, any suggestion now that they've breached their covenants or they haven't made a payment? Uh, I, I I'm unaware of any yeah. any such such suggestions. Um, I mean, and, it's a hefty debt load for for them to have to carry. Although, I presume at some point they're going to have yeah, to refinance. Yeah, I mean, in some the, way. the most recent accounting period that we have uh, we can mm. see the data for is. Is 2014, and you know it, it. It did make a loss that year, but it was it was it was much smaller loss than it did in the period from March to December 2013, which was the first year, the first period for Landmark. Mm. So it cut its losses, and also its revenue has increased. I think, which must surely be because simply. Um, the advertising mm. market as a whole has come back a little bit, but meanwhile, the the model for for newspaper printing hasn't really improved. 
you know, it's it's in fact it's it's you know circulation is continuing to decline across the industry, mm. albeit at a slightly slower rate for the Irish Examiner than for other uh, broadsheet newspapers. Yes, okay, we'll brush over that. Uh, I should point out... Including, uh, including Irish Independent. Indeed. Uh, I should point out, listeners, that the uh, Irish Examiner newspaper is currently published by the Irish Times. I think it's probably important uh, to put that on the record. Um, Mark, just... Uh, just uh, Printed paper, yeah. Um, Mark, let's just sort of put the scale of uh, Landmark Media's media assets uh, in, into context, if you like, because it's not just about the Irish Examiner, there's also regional papers and radio stations, but it, it would seem that these exploratory talks are just about the Irish Examiner. Or just about the Irish Examiner newspaper, yeah. I mean, look, it, it would fit in very, very well with what um, INM's stated strategy is, which is to mop up whatever print assets they can across the island of Ireland. Um, the chief executive of INM, Robert Pitt, has said that continually. The Irish Examiner's uh, uh, circulation is falling at about almost 8%, I think, in the last figures, down to about 30,000 um, um, copies sold daily. Um, which is a you know, it's a fraction of where it was um, um, prior to the prior to the last crash, and 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 you wonder what is the what is the future of you know, what is the future of any newspaper? What is the future of, of of a newspaper when it reaches that sort of a level? Where is the floor level? And and uh, and you know as as yourself and Laura both said already, they're carrying twenty one million euros in debts. Um, it looks like a classic case of a company that has to deleverage in some way, um, and you know sell whatever assets they can and get whatever they can from them and bring their debts down to a manageable level, particularly offloading assets uh, 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 like the Irish Examiner, which will be, uh, it's presumed, with such falling revenues and falling circulation, a drain on the resources of Landmark. Mm. Um, but they went through this pre-packed receivership process in 2013, and that's when, I suppose, everybody assumed they had deleveraged, that, you know, they cut their ties with the Sunday Business Post. Um, they obviously did a deal. We don't know the terms of the deal with AIB specifically, but they did a deal clearly with with AIB. And but the, but the landscape, the market has deteriorated uh, uh, even further since then. I mean, even in 2013, when we all knew that the newspaper industry was in trouble, um, and we didn't know that it was going to be in this much trouble four years less than four years mm-hmm. later in 2017. I mean, look, it, it's it's obvious that convergence and newspapers joining together with back office functions, maybe under the same corporate umbrella, that's the way newspapers will survive. It's obvious. It makes Perfect sense on every on every level, commercial um, and operational, and um, but there's one level on which it makes uh, less sense, and that is the political level and the level of media plurality, and it's the elephant in the room. I mean, look, it, it's obvious that it would make sense for INM to buy the Irish Examiner, but 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 the thing that would stop this deal potentially from happening would be the fact that Dennis O'Brien is the largest shareholder in independent news and media. That's the elephant in the room. Nobody else would be interested in this, only for that. Yeah, Laura. Um would INM be allowed to take over the Irish Examiner? Especially, I um, mean, we should if, if recall this, as well if, that Celtic Media, the, the regional newspaper yeah. group, is already subject to a, a, a takeover proposal from INM for which they're waiting competition clearance effectively. And that's why the timing of this story is interesting and, and, and very pro- problematic because I think, you know, if this was deal was to be announced today or tomorrow, um, that it would be extremely difficult for it to, to go through. Um, they're in the middle at the moment of the process. There's a full investigation going on into INM's proposed acquisition of Celtic Media. And, uh, you know, the owners of Celtic Media very much want that deal to happen. They argue that their company isn't sustainable without the economies of scale offered by the mm. likes of INM. Um, the minister isn't due to make his decision, as I understand it, until June. So there's a few months before that plays out. Um, it, yeah, politically, it's, it's, it would be a horror show for INM to get this over the line. And, you know, it's all to do with, uh, as Mark said, to do with its largest shareholder, Dennis O'Brien. Possibly without the Dennis O'Brien factor, 
it would be more straightforward because, you know, the, the simple argument is, as it is in many of these media mergers, is without consolidation, there's no means of survival. Mm. I mean, that's that could be the argument, I'm not saying that is the argument uh, right now, or the Irish examiner is in that position right now or and not. But it is the largest asset within Landmark. I mean, well, that was the question I was about to pose to you. I mean, is Landmark sustainable without the Irish examiner as part of its portfolio? Well, it would be a much smaller company. I'm not sure if it would be sustainable on on. Uh, on because I just haven't got access to the to the up to date uh, revenue and profit figures, but you know at the, the 2014 figures suggest that it employs about 476 people, and I, I, I believe about 300 of them are employed at the Irish Examiner. Um, you know the, the the last sort of big public outing that the the company made because they they keep very quiet uh, would have been the chief executive Tom Murphy at the uh, banking inquiry, and he, he was you know he he spoke optimistically about the Irish Examiner brand going from strength to strength. And of course... Well, the brand might be yes, the sales and the brand indeed. Like I mean, even with, you know, even if we can envisage a future, you know, it could be five years down the line, we could be talking about where Irish mm. Examiner is somehow under the auspices of INM. You know, I imagine they would keep the Irish Examiner brand, which is obviously very important to people in Cork and the Munster region. And it's very closely associated to the Crosby's. I mean, there's two Crosby shareholders as part of the landmark, isn't it? That's right. Uh, Tom and Ted Crosby were the two Crosbys who, who sort of made the transition from the old Thomas Crosby Holdings to uh, Landmark. And uh, there's, there's eight regional newspapers in there and a number of uh, radio stations or shares in radio stations. So it is a big media group. It, it, you know, it's it's a historic one in, in Irish mm. terms. And this this could be could be very awkward. But as Mark was saying, you know, Ro- Robert Pitt has, 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 has uh, s- signalled many times that he... Uh, believes in print uh, consolidation in the print newspaper industry, yeah. and also he's never done. He, he was actually, you know, I've actually we've put put it to him. You know, does that mean you might see yourself uh, see I and M purchasing a national newspaper at some point? And he didn't. He didn't rule that out. You know, and that's in full knowledge of all of the potential competition sure. uh, barriers. Mark, of course, we did have the kerfuffle recently about the row between Robert Pitt and his chairman Leslie Buckley over. Uh, a possible acquisition of news talk by INM from Communicor, a company that Dennis O'Brien controls. Uh, Robert Pitt wasn't in favour of that. Leslie Buckley very much in favour of it. It didn't happen in the end, but it shows that there are tensions at the heart of INM. There are tensions at the heart of INM, um, and and the company has, you know, I mean, it's not just speculation. The company has has acknowledged it and has said so in, in stock market announcements that there was a difference of opinion between the CEO so and the chairman. Have those tensions gone away? We haven't heard anything no. from the company no. for a while. No, my understanding is that those tensions are, are have have not gone away. They haven't gone away, you know. And uh, uh, there is, um, you know, there 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 is still a. a, a a divergence of opinion between the chief executive of INM and the chairman of INM on certain issues, but it looks like you know th- those uh, that difference of opinion came to the fore over a possible bid for News Talk. But that's completely off the table now because um, um, News Talk just got a new, it just got its, its ten-year license renewed, and, and generally the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland doesn't allow a license to be transferred within the first two years of a new. Now, look, I'm sure maybe they could find a way around it, but within a new. So, look. You know, so so there there are still tensions there as to whether or not there will be tensions over a deal like this. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I and M has got an awful lot of cash. Um, at last count, I think it had about 
70, almost 70 million of net cash and, and it's due mm. to have a lot more by the time it announces the results. They need to start deploying that cash soon because... But uh, if the chief executive and the chairman, let's just say they're not on the same page at the mm. minute, if that's the case, I mean, how can a company pull off an acquisition like this? How it can, can it pursue an acquisition strategy? The simple fact is that it can't. The, the situation between Robert Pitt so what gives? And, and Leslie Buckley, I would imagine Robert Pitt's position uh, is the thing that is most likely to give because Leslie, uh, Leslie Buckley is the right-hand man of Dennis O'Brien who is the main shareholder. Okay, Laura, are there potentially other parties at the table for the Irish Examiner? Um, well, a number of companies have been mentioned as potential seizures, and, and they <laughs> include the Irish Times <laughs> and uh, Sunrise Media. Somebody call Liam Kavanagh. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is Sunrise Media is, is the is the key capital uh, backed owner of the Business Post, and of course, as you, you know, they originally were part of the same company, the Business Post. Or not originally, but at one point in their in their career, well, the titles they were spent, part of the they same spent time as part of TCH. Um, so, you know, it just depends on like. You know, both Dennis Bryan and various chief executives and chairman of INM have said over the years that they see a future uh, in which there are fewer newspapers in Ireland, maybe one or two. And so there is going to be some moving parts and there's going, there's going to be some alliances formed and it may well be at the level of takeovers or it may well be through um, shared, you know, printing, distribution, all of that kind of thing. Um, so we just don't know how it's going to play out, but I, I think the economies of scale argument is, is a very strong one, and I think when the especially when a market is declining, you can't continue to have as many competitors as you did when times were good. Um, so I'll be very interested to see in, independent news and media is due to. Uh, publish its full year results in, in the coming period uh, and it'll be very interesting to see what they say at that stage Okay Mark Paul and Laura Slattery thank you for that That's it from uh, this episode of Inside Business my thanks to Chris, Caroline, Laura Slattery and Mark Paul for their contributions Jennifer Ryan produced a podcast with JJ Vernon as sound engineer don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. And remember that Inside Business is available to download for free from iTunes. You can also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.